Hello. Hello. It's nice to be back. Yeah, it is. And we don't really have plans for what to talk about today. Well, I mean, there are things to talk about. I got my second dose of the vaccine. Congratulations. So I'm quite happy about it. In fact, because, I mean, this is something that was not expected because my original second dose date was scheduled for the 12th of July, which is technically in eight days' time. Right. Right, and that was because there was a point in time where Singapore was experiencing limited vaccine supply. Yeah. So rather than commit two doses to every person who registers, we committed one dose for every person that registered, and then we extended the vaccination timeline, the interval, to about six weeks. Yep. To maximize the number of available doses in the immediate term, right? As more supplies trickle in. Yep. Right. And, and, and that situation has thankfully changed for the better. Mm. Vaccine supplies have gone up by a lot. And so right now, we have been able to shorten the, the interval to back to four weeks. And so I basically rescheduled my appointment to last week. Yeah. I mean, I, I did. The same. My interval was originally six weeks and I rescheduled. So I am getting the vaccine in two weeks. I mean, the second dose in two weeks. So it's the original original four-week gap for Mm. Moderna. Speaking of which, I haven't checked this or looked into it, but is there still the massive discrepancy between availability for Pfizer and Moderna? I haven't checked, but I think that is still the case because there is this, I think, I don't know whether it's true or not, but there is certainly this rumor that Moderna side effects are more severe than the Pfizer side effects. I mean, that's what I keep hearing. But, you know, who who exactly can do a one-to-one comp? It's not possible to do an exact apples-to-apples comparison. There will be variants here and there. It will be nice to see if, you know, there is a sort of a mean effect size thing, but I have not come across any such studies. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm not sure what exactly the what exactly is creating this perception. It is okay, it is interesting in the sense that I think I, I feel like there must be a branding effect at work, right? People have heard of Pfizer, right? Yes, and Moderna yeah. is a lot is a lot less well known. I mean, to the degree that, you know, people actually like choose their medications. I mean Right. It's brand choose, it's brand recognition, yeah. Yeah, there is a there is a element of brand recognition. I mean, you know, in Singapore, would you go for acetaminophen, Tylenol, or Panadol? Yeah, exactly. They're Even all the same yeah, thing. Exactly the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or today, I learned Excedrin as well, so so Panadol. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's interesting. Uh, the reason why I'm talking about Panadol is because two days ago, so this was uh, two days after my well. Yeah, two days ago, two days after my vac- my second dose, I was feeling much better already. I'll talk about the side effects later on. But I was having a mild headache and it was about 9pm. So I thought I'll take a Panadol, right? The headache will go away, I'll go to bed and, and I'll be fine. I took Panadol Extra, which, you know, supposed mm, to be which has stronger. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked, after, after popping the pills, I looked at the ingredients. It says acetaminophen or Panadol. Mm-hmm. And caffeine, 65 milligrams, which is about one and a half cups of coffee. And I popped two tablets. So that's three cups of coffee. I'm, I'm curious about... Okay, that, okay this, is, this is another <laughs> segue still, right? But that's what we do, that's fine. I'm curious about how you determine the amount of caffeine in a single cup of coffee, actually. I just Google. Uh, it's about 40 milligrams. Interesting. Okay, because yeah. I have seen some very di- different numbers. I'm sure, yeah. 
And I think it also depends on whether you are doing drip or mm-hmm. oh, yeah, French sure, press sure. or yeah. espresso. Because I think espresso-based drinks have a significantly higher I think it's more concentrated. Per, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think, I think if you count like in terms of shots of espresso, I think espresso can be a bit higher than that. To be honest, I have I have actually no idea. I'm I'm just basing this off of something I read on the internet once, and it's it has stuck. I feel like espresso might be in the hundred milligram range, but okay, okay, whatever. Let's see, uh, well, no, oh, one shot of espresso, two hundred and twelve milligrams. Oh, there you go. In hundred grams of coffee, right? Okay, okay. There so you that's go. you know, yeah. significantly less than one shot of espresso, but actually, that's interesting. Are they talking about diluting a shot of espresso? Like yes, in I mean that's a cup of coffee. Yeah, and probably in the americano, okay. which is the most basic okay. of all coffees in in both yeah. sense of the word. Sense of the word so. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I was just thinking because of the way that was phrased, it almost sounded like like if you actually pulled an espresso right and made like a full cup without diluting it. Right, that's different. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and very very unpleasant. Three visits to the Kopitiam auntie. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Going back to the the pharmaceutical, you know, the vaccine and the branding thing, I I also wonder how much psychological effect there is from hearing that that Pfizer's ninety five percent. I I realize that there are there there are different terms. There is vaccine efficiency and vaccine effectiveness. Effect, yeah, 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 yeah. And so from hearing that. Pfizer is 95% efficacious and uh, Moderna is 94%. Right? Now, I mean, in <laughs> practice, that's that that distinction is non-existent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it only it's, matters in super large populations, but at the individual level, that 1%, that less than 1% difference is, is negligible. You're not going to be that in that 1% right. that is going to benefit the, from Pfizer, but not Moderna. The likelihood of you being in that 1% is infinitesimally small. <laughs> yes. Not to mention that there is a very good chance that that difference is just a testing difference. Yeah, yeah. It could be stochastic. You're right. I mean, you know, the, the error the error, the error bars, the error bounds, uh, the confidence interval, sorry, probably overlaps significantly. Yeah. So I think that plays into it. For some people the shorter interval, three weeks versus four weeks, might be a factor. Although, I should note that in Singapore at least, the time that Pfizer appointments became much harder to get than Moderna appointments happened when the interval for everybody was six weeks. Right. Whether you got Pfizer or Moderna, the gap was six weeks. But that was also before anyone actually had any side effects manifest, right? Because that's people, yeah. I mean, yeah, but a lot of it is, is hearsay, right? Yeah. Like yeah. people yeah. are yeah. like, you yeah. know, I want Pfizer because I've heard Moderna side effects are worse. I also wonder how much of that is a post hoc rationalization. I th- yeah, I think so. I mean, I would like really like to see a controlled study for this. But e- essentially, I mean, I had side effects, right? And it's perfectly normal to have side effects. It's a sign that the body is doing something about it. <laughs> uh, I did feel like I got, I got ran over by a truck a few times uh, for the ho- for the thirty six hours immediately post vaccine. The second one. First one? The second one, sorry, the second dose. Second one. The first dose okay. was actually surprisingly mild. I had a sore arm, I had a mild headache 
for one day, that's it. Yeah, that's why I keep hearing that the second dose is significantly worse. The yeah, first the second one dose is, is, I mean, this seems universal, even for the Pfizer vaccine as well. Yeah. Although I've had one per, one friend report that she had a very strong reaction to her first Pfizer dose and not much to the f- second Pfizer dose, which leads me to wonder uh-huh. whether she may have had a undetected infection before. But anyway. Right. Right? Because that... You I know, mean, that makes sense. Anyway. But uh, yeah, the, the second dose, you know, actually it's, it's, it started as a slow burn, right? Um. For for my first Moderna dose, the 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 arm soreness only started I think the next day. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 the day of the vaccine it was like ah no problem. But to be fair, I got the vaccine at night, so you know like there wasn't much of the day left, and it was the next you know after when I woke up that I realized my arm was a bit sore. Um, right. With the second Moderna dose, the arm soreness began I think within about two hours. That's interesting. It was it was I... pretty fast. Yeah. So again, this might be a psychological effect because I remember when you got your first Pfizer dose, mm. you described Moderna. it as being... Uh, you got Moderna? Mm, yeah. Okay. When you got your first dose, I remember you describing it as like being punched in the arm. Oh yeah. No, that's right. It, there was... Be- yeah. Right? yeah. 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 It was like being punched in the arm. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I got my first dose, right? And then there's the 30 minute waiting period, the observation period. Mm-hmm. So for those 30 minutes, I mean, I was sitting just very still and staring at my phone because there's nothing to do. That's what everyone does. To do. That's what everyone does. So I was just sitting still. And if you want to be Ponzi, bring a book to look smart. But you know, I didn't, I didn't even bother. <laughs> yeah. And then when they say like, okay, you're done, you can go. That was when I kind of moved my arm for the first time, mm-hmm. right? After, for real, because... Prior to that, I hadn't really thought about it. And I was like, ah, okay, this is the punch in the arm feeling. Oh. Right? It wasn't severe. Right. But nope. it was it was salient, I guess. There's a certain dullness that manifests. Yes. Right. So yes. it's not like it's not the pain of getting punched, it's the aftermath of yep. getting punched. It's that that yep. sensation you have of, you know, there's been some kind of damage done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the fact that now that you say it, right, the fact that I noticed it mm. so soon, right, basically the first time that I moved my arm, I wonder if that there was a priming effect, right? Because I, I, yeah, I mean, there is a psychosomatic probably, uh, right, right, uh, if uh, and, an element to this as well. Yeah, and I think pain is uh, pain is very psychosocial. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I think this is something that you know. For a lot of people, I think there is the assumption that pain is physiological, that it originates from somewhere in the body. And I mean, it there can is be... a physiological component to it. Yeah. But there's I mean, also yes, a You know, if you cut off your foot, <laughs> you're definitely going to feel, well, I would hope you feel pain. <laughs> right? Right. Yes. But I think the it, it's kind of like, you know, there are, there are people who physiological do not feel pain. And they get into all sorts of trouble because of of it. It's like, you know, like, oh, I didn't realize that I put my hand on a burning surface or that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And I think for me at least, right, hearing that there is going to be the the sensation, right, of like swelling and whatever, probably accelerated the well, not the process, right? No, the, but but it your made sensitivity more, per- perhaps. Yes. The right? sensitivity to to it. Hmm. Your ability to detect it, essentially, or yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, if I hadn't heard about it, like, maybe I wouldn't have noticed it, and you know, until a few hours or the next day. 
Yeah. Anyway, I wanted to bring up the difference between vaccine efficacy mm-hmm. and effectiveness. Mm-hmm. So I came across this because I was looking up, you know, like what's the actual difference in side effects between Pfizer and Moderna? Because again, I think it is kind of ridiculous that you wait so much longer to get a Pfizer vaccine mm-hmm. and people do it. Yeah. Right. I mean, okay, to be fair, this is also the part of the risk calculus, right? You know, the number of yes. community cases has since undergone a rather significant decline. Yes. And so I think people are, and, and this is probably also is what is what's driving um, relatively slow vaccination rates in countries that have adopted a zero COVID strategy, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, which is where, ah, yeah, cases not that many, why rush? Which is, you know, delaying reopening. I think that so that now there are now two push forces, right? There is the, you know, COVID is not that prevalent anyway. Why rush? And then it's the I want to get out of this country and travel. And you know, right. yeah. 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 So I'm a, I was looking up like what's the actual difference in reported side effects? And I was looking at the Wikipedia page for COVID like comparison of COVID vaccines, mm-hmm. which we'll pull up and put in the show notes. So the thing is there is a categorization for vaccine efficacy which is basically how well does it actually prevent infection yes. right this is like extremely controlled conditions yes okay then there is effectiveness which is in a real world population how adherent right are people to following the the conditions that make the vaccine oh, is that effective right? okay. or efficacious. Okay, okay. So I guess this is a, a case where, I mean, to be to be completely facetious about it, right? The the difference is the clearest where, okay, let's imagine we had a COVID vaccine that is 100% efficacious. You get the vaccine, you will never get COVID. But the conditions are, you need to fast for 48 hours before getting the vaccine and there are it's like a five shot schedule right right and for some reason that researchers cannot figure out it only works if you get your vaccine shot like at 3 in the morning <laughs> right okay so these are all conditions that yeah. contribute to a low take up right right and Therefore, if it was used as part of a public health strategy, it would not be considered very effective. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because you're going to have people falling out of, you know, not getting like their second, third, fourth, fifth shot or like missing their 3 a.m. appointments and instead they get it at 4 a.m. and at 4 a.m. it's not efficacious at all. Yeah. I mean, just This is example, hypothetical. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So going back to the actual vaccines that we have, I think the primary comparison is between the two-shot vaccines and the one-shot vaccines. Yes. Because the one-shot vaccines are very effective. Mm-hmm. You only need to show up once. Yep. And then you're done. Yep. Right? Which is only, wait, which are the one-shots? That's J&J and is there any other? That... Uh, I am not, is Sinovac one-shot? I have no idea. I mean, I am, I'm trying to put Sinovac as far from my mind as possible. <laughs> Yeah, but I think J&J is probably the most prominent yes. one-shot vaccine. Which yes. is also why it's used as part of so many public health strategies, especially for countries where 
like health access is low and you cannot guarantee that somebody is going to come in for two vaccines. Which countries are the ones using Johnson & Johnson anyway? I, I'm only familiar with the US. I think the US is using Johnson & Johnson. Yes. I think in terms of public health, the one that comes to mind is South Africa is, okay. is putting a big emphasis on J&J. I, I think do. this is based on what I read like ages ago. And and pulling out from memory right now. Let's see. Authorizations, list of COVID-19 vaccine authorizations for Johnson & Johnson. Okay, quite a few countries. Australia and Switzerland has authorized full, uh, has provided full authorization and about more than 50 countries have also authorized the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Singapore not being one of them, obviously. But I think this is the case where, I mean, from a public health point of view, you're going to assess a bunch of different factors, right? Like yeah. Singapore is in a position where we can afford to be strict because I think the government knows that excess is less of an issue and compliance is less of an issue. Also the, well, I mean, compliance is one issue, but also the fact that the health system is tightly controlled at the individual yes, scale. correct. So correct. it's harder for people to slip through the cracks. Although we are seeing gaps showing up with regard to um, OAP communities, right? Baby boomer uh, areas with uh, OH pensioners, right. areas with high proportions right, of right. Uh, baby boomers. So bo the Bukit Mirror cluster, I think, is a good example of this. Interesting. I never thought about it. So I, this actually was brought up mm. to me by a friend, and I don't know whether this is, is verifiable, but he said that one of the, actually the key drivers of vaccine uptake, you know, mm -hmm is actually how active the grassroots volunteers are. Which is something I did not think about prior to this. And the example he gave was comparing Bukit Merah versus Ponong Pase. Ponong Pase because it's a, you know, it's a hotly contested opposition ward, but formally, or it's hotly contested always with the opposition, has a very active grassroots ground force. Right. And a very high proportion also of baby boomers. It's an it's it's a fairly old estate. Yeah. Right. It's a it's a very mature yeah. estate, shall we say. And so because of that, I think the statistics are that about eighty percent of baby boomers in Potong Pase are vaccinated. I don't have I don't know where this number came from. So a, a lot of this is, you know, I'm hearing this secondhand, right? But there is, you know, based on what we've seen from Bukit Mirror, I think there is some kernel of truth to this, right? Whereas in Bukit Merah, where the, the grassroots response has been a lot more sluggish, we're seeing a mm -hmm. lot lower vaccination rates. And therefore, when we look at the case, the case numbers in Bukit Merah, only about 50% of the uh, infected baby boomers were, were, were vaccinated with at least one dose. That's interesting. And that probably does, you know, I mean, there are all these social factors that play into you know, something as, as as consequential as vaccination. And I think this is something that really is, it's an important story to tell. It's an important thing to add, you know, to our, our handling of public health crises. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm thinking about this because I'm also wondering, right, obviously if there is a clear correlation between grassroots activity and vaccine take-up, that's one factor. I think part of the issue is, I mean, that is also the age group where there are likely to be a lot of pre-existing conditions. Yes. Yeah. That make it... I, okay, I mean, I 
it, it, it's not a single factor, right? It's a no. lot of factors that, yeah. that, that come together to make this group more vaccine uh, hesitant. So if you are in a situation where your information sources are limited, you're not comfortable with seeking out information on the internet, you're dependent on your own existing network, offline network of people to give you information about whether you should get the vaccine, right? Obviously now your access to information is limited. Then you might be dealing with a pre-existing chronic condition and the advice typically is talk to your doctor. And now then you have a problem of, okay, to get the vaccine, I have to go to the doctor and talk to the doctor about my concerns. And then at that point, it's like, okay, maybe I shouldn't bother. So I think what you're describing is, I think perhaps the generation above, that's the, you know, the pioneer generation, because those are the, you uh, know, right, people who are much enough. older. I think with the baby boomers, it's not a lack of information. It is that their information consumption is largely dominated by low quality information sources. Cannot argue. I, I don't think this is a controversial statement to make. I, I think. do not think so. Yeah, this is true across countries, I think. Yes, this is a generational issue, right? It's that, you know, social media has allowed for this remarkable proliferation of low quality information sources. And then, of course, your confirmation bias kicks in and, and you know, that leads to this ecosystem. So, you know, which is why having a physical grassroots person come up to you and, and, and you know, talk to you and explain to you the reasons for vaccinating, I think is very useful. And this is not just, I think, you know, something we see here in Singapore, but also I, I'm basing this on, you know, what we see with Native American communities in the US as well. I'm starting to prepare for my eventual return to New Mexico. So I'm looking at vaccination rates across New Mexico. And we talked about this last week, as, uh, well, last episode as well. In the more recent numbers, some of the highest vaccination rates in New Mexico not in Albuquerque, not in Santa Fe, which are the two places, or not in Los Alamos, where you'd expect, right, vaccination rates to be slightly higher because these are metropolitan areas or these are cities or areas with a much higher proportion of educated people. The most vaccinated counties are McKinley County, and I cannot remember what the other ones are, but it's where you have the Native American reservations. And it's because there has been so much community organizing among the Native Americans, right? Together with, with the government as well, to ensure that a good proportion of the you know, very vulnerable, this very vulnerable community are vaccinated. I think um, McKinley County hit 80% most uh, recently, if I'm not mistaken. Hang on. Uh, vaccination. That's Which is, yeah, I think that's, you know, it's it's more than impressive. It's coming close to herd immunity for the Delta variant. Bearing in mind that the upper floor... Right, that's a good point. The upper yeah. floor of herd immunity for the Delta variant is about 87%. So McKinley County, percent of residents with at least one shot, I'm looking at the uh, Department of Health website, 99.1%. Holy cow. Percent of residents with vaccination series completed, 81.5%. That sounds like the only people who are not vaccinated may be the ones who are unable. Yeah, I, I completely yeah. agree. Uh, Los Alamos though, okay, Los Alamos is, holy cow. You know, Los Alamos, I think I mentioned before, one of the highest concentrations of uh, PhD holders in the world mm -hmm. uh, because of yeah. the, uh, the, the, the national labs Lab. there, that, you know, there's yeah. nuclear research. Complete vaccination rate, 
82.6%. Ho, wow, they really jumped in the last few days. The other one with impressively high vaccination rate, Taos. Taos is a tourist town. I mean, it's a site of a significant Native American population, but it's also famously a skiing resort. 71.7% fully vaxxed. So McKinley, Los Alamos, Taos, Washington Bernalillo, which is where Albuquerque is, is about 65.1%, but it's going to go up by the time I arrive back. If you're looking at the numbers, the thing is, the ones with a lot of, with a high vaccination rate, they... I think the difference between them and Albuquerque is that Albuquerque is very, very diverse in every sense. Yes. Right? In diverse in the economy, diverse in the population. Yes, inequality. Whereas, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think if you're looking at like McKinley or or Los Alamos, the factors that lead one or one group of people to be vaccinated will quickly lead to everybody or large proportion of people being vaccinated. Whereas like in Albuquerque, in terms of public health, you're looking at many, many different like vectors of, of you know, encouraging people to get vaccinated. Like an approach that's going to work for one group of people in Albuquerque is not going to work for another group. Yeah, and the Department of uh, Health has already that, accounted for this. Yep. Or, you know, they, they actually published statistics of vaccine administered by ethnicity. Right, yeah. And uh, interesting statistics, the Asian and Pacific Islander population, which is probably the smallest population in, in New Mexico, 31,000 people, mm-hmm. 79.2% mm-hmm. fully vaxxed. Mm, it's nice. the highest vaccination rate among all the ethnicities. Second highest is Native American, I think, 56.7% mm-hmm. vaccinated, American Indian and Alaska Native. No, actually, whites are the second highest. 58% fully vaxxed, 58.6%. Okay. Then Native American. Then, unfortunately, Latinos, 45.7%. And the Blacks, uh, 41.2%. So, I mean, there is significant vaccine hesitancy among the, the, the Black community, which, you know, we know for historic is partly because of historical reasons. Understandably. Yeah. So, so there will be, you know, there will be hurdles to clear, right? You know, I think, mm-hmm. uh, as with any public health situation. But I think New Mexico is in a slightly better situation and thanks also in part to very strong community uh, outreach work, uh, at least for the Native right. Americans. Right. Where are you getting the numbers from, by the way? I'm going to put it on the show notes, but this is the uh, New Mexico Department of Health vaccine dashboard. They actually have a vaccine dashboard. Wow. So it's... Okay. The New Mexico Department of Health is good, partly because the governor used to be a health uh, official. Right. It makes a big difference. And I think this is something that people will say, ah, you're making something out of nothing, but I think it means something. All of the relevant departments that are dealing with uh, COVID response are run by women. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's something else that's interesting that we probably don't have the time to talk about today. No. But And um, I don't think I have the necessary to be background a... in... Yeah. Yeah, me neither. I mean, but this seems to be a recurring theme. I think so too. Right? Right. Although, let's not talk about uh, Dido Harding in the UK and Test and Trace, maybe. <laughs> but let's just put that aside for now. I, I want to talk about the, at least in Singapore, right? Because when the Prime Minister announced kind of like the new, his most recent speech was basically talking about how Singapore is going to deal with COVID yep. in the long term. Yeah. Right, the long term plan. And I think to not bore the crap out of everybody, right, the basic gist of it is that Singapore is going to treat COVID as if um, it's endemic. Right. Well, as or if it were to the flu. put it a different way, 
Yeah. So I, I was very hesitant to put it that way because of how many people have talked about COVID as not Just, worse than the flu, yeah, right? It's fucking stupid. Yeah. But I think, again, from a public health point of view, not from an individual mm-hmm. infection point of view, from a public health point of view, Singapore is going to treat COVID as if it cannot be eradicated. It can only be managed. This makes sense right. because zero COVID is not a sustainable strategy. As we are starting to see. Right. right. In Taiwan. I mean, every country that has adopted zero COVID has seen cracks form. And these are cracks that, yeah. you know, it's it's inevitable that these cracks were going to form anyway, right? Someone yeah. fucks up. You know, as we see Correct. with... We saw with Taiwan at the, the, the airport, uh, as we saw with Australia, yeah. also at the airport. It's always at the airport for some, I mean, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Right. Uh, New Zealand, for some reason, I think has remained relatively insulated, but it's New Zealand. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I think the thing about zero COVID is, a zero COVID strategy rather, is it buys you time. Mm, yeah. But it buys you time to do something, right? Yes. You have to put in place some kind of strategy for an eventual reopening where your zero COVID strategies will not be viable? Well, okay, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's a bifurcating uh, decision tree, right? You start with zero COVID. Yeah. F- it's, it's either complete eradication, mm-hmm. like we saw with SARS, yeah. or we fucked up, now what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or not Correct. we fucked up, yeah. but we were not able to eradicate it, now what? Yeah. Right? With SARS, yeah. we had the benefit of SARS largely infecting only mostly East Asian countries, countries with very yes. robust public health systems that were able to completely shut down the spread of the virus. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think, true, yeah. you know, in, in many ways as well, it's, it's, it's bloody lucky that I think in Singapore, we were, we were able to even prevent ongoing virus. But I think we took people off planes even who, who had, who had right. SARS, right? Because if SARS had been able to successfully spread elsewhere, it may have become endemic. Because, I mean, just I think look at the it, public health responses of the US and the UK. <laughs> I think there's another couple of other factors with SARS. One was simply more deadly than COVID, but less, less transmissible, yes. significantly yes, correct. less transmissible. The second thing is, we don't actually know how SARS got eradicated. <laughs> it just vanished. It just <laughs> stopped. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and so I think when it comes to SARS, we were lucky. <laughs> yes. No. I, I right. Agree. Like the world was lucky that for some reason, once the transmission rates were brought down low enough, it just disappeared. Yes, you're right. Right. Anyway, the the prime minister's speech was basically how do we live with a world where we cannot get rid of COVID, right? And so it's a commitment to basically saying vaccinate everybody, blah blah blah. And we have to accept there will be some infections and yes, there will be some deaths. This is the way it's going to be moving forward. As we see with many other diseases and the other infectious diseases. But what worries me about this, and I think, you know, by and large, this is a, it's a reasonable strategy. You know, this is something that we, it's, it's adaptation and it's a much more sustainable solution moving forward. What worries me now is that test and trace, is, or trace together is going to become increasingly permanent. Yeah. To be honest, I don't really have enough background to talk about how that's going to be from an information security point of view, right? From a like from an individual privacy information point of view. Information security perspective, I think it's less of a concern. It's more personal privacy concern. So if because I mean this is a decentralized system, you only upload your information if you become a confirmed case. So all the information is not local. 
Well, not necessarily, actually, because there is a database. With trace together, I think here it's important to make a distinction between trace together and safe entry. Mm, yes. With trace together, the information is decentralized, yeah. right? With safe entry, it's not. It's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not. That's it's not true. possible. Like you just think about it. It's. It's. Yeah. There is no way for the information not to live somewhere. Yeah, somewhere in the government server up there, there is a, a, a database that just has rows being added, you know, every second. Correct. So, I, I mean, in that sense, I think trace together is probably less invasive than safe entry. But I think one critical difference between the two was for that reason, at least, you could use trace together or you could use safe entry, but now they are being combined. Yes. Right. Yes, and so that gives you know any any person with authority over the data the ability to reconstruct individual movements, yes. and individual contacts, which you know good for contact tracing. Yep. But from a privacy perspective, I mean, okay, let's leave aside the possibility that the database can be hacked. Let's assume, let's make the rather generous assumption that you know security is perfect, is unbreakable. Even then. Right, you ha- you run into the issue of privacy, and we've already seen you know encroachment into this privacy. We now have what seven major crimes that are uh, you know that 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 allow the police to break into your into your your track and trace data. Will this expand even more? So I'm actually wondering, right, if there is a situation where herd immunity, and I'm again hesitant to to bring up the term because at this point it's become so loaded. And we are nowhere near herd immunity at all. The two yeah, thirds, first, two thirds, we is, are nowhere near. Two thirds is sixty-six point six percent. That's not even close to herd immunity. The WHO is recommending seventy percent, and Delta, you know, the based on Delta the R dot value, 80. it's about eighty to eighty-seven percent. Yeah, but leaving that aside, right? I mean, I'm I'm also thinking herd immunity because the reason I'm I'm hesitant, right, to bring it up as a factor is because of the countries who, that attempted a huge herd immunity strategy. Oh, without yeah. sufficient Christ. forethought, that's a different conversation. But going back to the working off the strategy that COVID is going to be endemic, mm. yes, you still need contact tracing. But at what point does the transmissibility become low enough that you can be reasonably sure that it's not spreading? Yeah. And so this is something that you know. Obviously, we cannot talk. We we cannot talk about any 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 certainty because we're not modelers uh, of this particular yeah. system. But this is something where the modelers need to you know to 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 predict or need to to plan out. Okay, what's the vaccination rate at which the transmission rate becomes so low that you can you know you don't. I mean, we have we have talked about the relaxation of ring fencing, which potentially is a signal that they may start to phase out trace together but i i mean i'm i okay, i can i can see an argument from both sides because mm. in the same speech right the the prime minister said you know we're going to treat any contacts immediate family as immediate contacts so it's as a case where let's say i run into somebody who is infected with covid Right, they become a confirmed case. The contact tracers reach out to me and say, "You've been in contact with someone who is a confirmed case." Right. Previously, I would be 
quarantined, but my family would not be. Yes. And so now they're they're treating the family as being effectively immediate contacts as well. The second order. Just because... Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that makes sense yeah. from at least the data we have here. I mean, so this is complicated right. because masking policy is so variable worldwide. We saw with Sydney that a brief walk by, I think, un- was it unmasked? I believe it was when their mask mandate was lifted. Right. So a brief unmasked pass by could lead to transmission. Whereas for us, yes. and I'm speaking from personal experience, right? The Anchorvale cluster just, uh, Anchorvale Food Fair cluster just closed, which is the coffee shop just, you know, two blocks away from me. But that yeah. I, I visit all the time, right? You know, that mm-hmm. is my, my main source of nourishment and sustenance. <laughs> and okay. um, for that cluster, right, despite being a relatively popular coffee shop because it serves a fairly large catchment of residents, transmission mm-hmm. was only between people working at the coffee shop, right? Because momentary contact between masked people has a much lower chance of transmission than momentary contact yep. between unmasked people. So the question now is, yep. this strategy of you know, treating family members as immediate isolates makes sense because your family members are those you're most likely to have short to yep. long uh, duration unmasked contact with. So yep. now the question then becomes, for how long will we have to keep masking Right, and will this mm-hmm. strategy become viable when mask mandates are lifted? So it's it's interplay of That's, various factors, right? It's transmission yep. rate with and without masks, and so the, all that needs to be. And I do not envy the, the 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 poor data scientist who has to who has to to model this out. I think the uh, another factor here is if I'm not mistaken. Australia's vaccination rates are still low. Oh my God, it's not even low. It's below the floor. It's 8%. 8% shitting percent. I mean, right. I, what are they thinking? Okay, let's let's not go yeah. into that part yeah. of it. Yeah. But I think, I mean, it, it, I think it comes back to the thing you brought up earlier, which is countries assume that a zero COVID strategy allows them to open up without necessarily uh, a longer-term strategy for how you're going to deal with. It's, it's what you said, right? The bifurcating tree. Mm-hmm. So Australia went on the eradicate COVID branch yeah. and now they have been unceremoniously pulled over to the somebody screwed up. Yeah. What happens now? Yeah. Branch. So I'm thinking, right, if the strategy is to, in, in Singapore rather, if the strategy is to manage, is to manage COVID through a combination of vaccination, presumably, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that the mask policy is going to stay in place for a while. I think so. Right? But I'm putting numbers out of my ass, but I think well into next year. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next thing is some form of contact tracing. Yes. Which I think, okay, we are, we're not going to get away from because in any kind of epidemic management situation, contact tracing is like the number one public health tool. Yeah. Right? The question is, is it going to be traced together? And I am leaning towards the, I would hope at least, right? I would hope that the goal is not to have a permanent trace together. I hope (laughs) that somebody, right, at GovTech is making plans for... The phasing out. Basically, yeah, the phasing out of trace together. Because 
firstly, as they kept saying right up front, it's a tool for contact tracers. Yes. And to the degree that the contact tracers no longer need that tool, can we stop using it? Right. Right. Because the, the I mean, I think the widespread acceptance of Trace Together is, is it happened only because of the crisis situation. As the crisis lifts. And, you know, there was this big hoo-ha over, over you know, when Trace Together data was used to solve a murder yep. case, despite the minister having explicitly made clear that that would not happen. Right. So I think I would hope, right, that there was a plan for it. Mm. And I think part of this is you, it's, it's going to be wait, wait and see. Yeah. There's not going to be a clear-cut answer like right now. I don't think anyone in the government knows as well. But, you know, one thing that would help would be for them to formulate a, a, at least a master plan ahead of time saying, okay, these are the milestones you must meet that we will then begin to, you know, to to phase out this and this and this measure. I think there is probably somebody working is. on it, I'm but sure for <laughs> obvious reasons, yeah, I'm sure there is, but for obvious reasons, it's not public. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, when will be, you know, when, I mean, because this is, this is all about messaging. It's all about, you know, managing public expectations. And this is something that all governments struggle with, Singapore especially, our comms, our government comms are not exactly <laughs> the best in the world, shall we say. I think the government communications as a whole are not that great. I, I do think the Prime Minister's last speech, whoever wrote it, must be feeling quite proud of themselves. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because, yeah, because like there were some nuggets, like for example, when the Prime Minister announced that they were going to extend the period between the two dose vaccines to six weeks <laughs> and then he said and I loosely quote instead of giving a small number of people no instead of giving a good number of people the maximum protection yeah. we will give the maximum number of people good protection I was <sighs> like ah oh, somebody so like is very pleased with themselves yeah, yeah. right now <laughs> some some mealy mouth shit-faced civil servant just standing behind the curtain going, huh, yeah, that'll show them. <laughs> I'm getting my Prime Minister National Day Award just based on this one phrase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's memorable. I remember. Yeah, it, I think it's, 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 it, was, it was pretty well done. I, I agree. So, you know, by and large, I think this is, it, it is an interesting approach. It, it, it probably is the, the most optimal way forward but yeah you know as with all all things the devil's in the details but the other thing of course is that also bearing in mind that this is only something we can do because we're in the privileged position where we have access to ample vaccine supply where we have a relatively well-educated population where we have a relatively compliant population and where we have a public health system that's fairly robust so the problem i think so, I mean, internally, this makes sense, but it's going to eventually run into the issue of the region where places like Indonesia are seeing cases surge, where vaccination supplies are weak, and where I think uh, in Malaysia, oh, good God, Malaysia, why Malaysia? You know, we depend heavily on Malaysia, and the problem now is that Malaysia is still very much deep in the throes of, of, of you know, 
the the, the virus, the, the the outbreak essentially, yeah. despite their movement control orders, because you know not even their ministers are complying with the with with, with control orders, which is pretty f- bloody stupid. Yeah. So you know, I think how this will interact with the much less predictable effects of other countries, especially countries in our immediate vicinity that we, we, we rely heavily yeah. on, India, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines especially, it will be a problem moving forward. Or it will at least, you know, I think, delay the relaxation of our current public health measures. Yeah. And I mean, we may end up in this weird situation where, let's say travel resumes, mm-hmm. right? it may resume to further away countries, but not the immediate vicinity. Mm, that's true. <laughs> just out of uh, just out of pure necessity. But we cannot ignore Malaysia for that long. Purely because of yes, our interdependency. I, I mean, yeah. I think Malaysia will be the biggest problem just because there is... I mean, you're talking about people commuting. <laughs> you're talking about food, right? Like so much of our food comes from Malaysia. And I mean, I don't know as a percentage of 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 trade, like how much of that comes from Malaysia. It's Malaysia is going to be the biggest problem. I've been following a few Malaysian public health, not not officials, but people who are working in the public health area, independently of the government. And good God, you know the the amount of despair that I'm getting from there from that side is is remarkable. I think Malaysia is still struggling to crack more than a hundred thousand tests per day. They're right. still reporting numbers in like the 60,000s and their test positivity mm-hmm. rate, despite the, red, the the low testing rate, is going up. It makes me wonder about the possibility of a form of COVID diplomacy. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. We should be donating excess. I mean, the problem is right now, we are still in that phase where we're desperately rushing to vaccinate as large a proportion of our population as possible. So I think the, the National Day milestone will probably be an important time to to take stock and go, okay, what is our current vaccine supply situation? How much can we spare to neighbouring countries? I mean, if nothing else, at least Johor Bahru or Johor State. <laughs> but I mean, there will come a time, there will come a time where it's in Singapore's best interests to make sure Malaysia's public health strategy is is working, right? And you you have to wonder if at some point, Singapore just doesn't, doesn't just say like, look, guys, we really want you to fix this. How about we come in? In fairness, we already have. We've been vaccinating Malaysian yeah. lorry drivers. We've been vaccinating Malaysian workers. That's true. So yeah. we actually have That's already true. started, in a sense, subsidizing the vaccination load of the Malaysian government, at least for the Johorians yeah. or the Johorians, which is an awful yeah. thing. And I mean, that's not, it's not purely altruistic, it's not, it's not, right? It's because purely transactional. Needs, yeah, Singapore needs these people mm-hmm. To be vaccinated. For our economy to continue to chug along. Yeah. So so I mean, this is something that, you know, we we will have to 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 think about in, in obviously much smarter people than either of us have to think about. <laughs> right. I, I do not pretend to be an expert in this, but you know, this is something that where, you know, we, we are living through this situation right now. It has direct material impact on our lives as well. You know, it's at least we have yeah. some context for commenting, and the less said about other countries like the US, the better. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, or the UK for for that matter. Uh, I, the UK is even lower than the US in in the the hierarchy of countries managing. COVID they they're making properly. a big deal about their vaccination program, but their total vaccination rate is not that impressive. No, nope. Anyway, 
we need to wrap up. So yes, I think this was a fairly productive discussion. Yeah. Even though it was all COVID. Yes. I know, right? I want to talk I, about airports. Like, who wants to talk about? <laughs> who wants to talk about COVID? Who wants to talk about? But I think it's a timely you know, vaccination. Important. Sorry, fully vaccinated proportion of uh, in the UK forty nine point nine percent. Ah, all right. You know, they talk a big game about their. Right. Fuck, you know. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it's time to wrap up. So this is episode. 26, 26 of uh, Monkey Mind. You can find the show notes at monkeymind.xyz slash 026. And we will talk to you in a month. Yes. Yep. So we are going to try and record the first, what do we say? The first Sunday of every the month. The first week. The first Sunday, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and then the episode will be out shortly after that. So. Yes. Yay. All right. See you. Goodbye. Goodbye.